Hey, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. One of the areas in which I can speak with some authority, probably a lot of authority, and believe me, there are not many areas which I can speak with any authority of whatsoever, is that raising a child with a developmental disability is not easy. Uh, one of my children, my middle child, has a developmental disability, and in the time that we have been working with her to see how far she can progress, you see how many challenges come up on a daily basis. And while that statement might seem really obvious that it's hard to raise a child with a developmental disability, it's really hard to understand the extent of those challenges until you have to live with them as part of your everyday life. The experience of being a parent of a developmentally disabled child or neurologically atypical child, based on how you describe it, can be highly varied. And this is, you know, there's no one experience that all parents have who are in this position. Kids can have a range of functioning, a range of challenges, abilities, and a wide variety of barriers. But regardless of all of our different experiences, based on whatever unique situation we face, we all share one thing in common, and that's all of us frequently need some form of help. Yeah, that's right. And this is interesting because this is where the folks from Jeb's game come in. And this is a group of game designers and developers, sound and communication professionals and educators who were inspired into action by the story of a man named Jeb, who's a young man that had Down syndrome and he was having trouble learning how to read. And so this team got together, they met on Reddit, they formed some forms of coalitions and working together on Discord using the power of online tech and put together with an open source mentality, trying to explore how VR, virtual reality gaming, could be used to help people with intellectual challenges learn how to read. It's a really interesting, you know, mixing together technology, education, and helping folks um, with all different types of neurological, uh, or all across the neurological spectrum. And so with versions of this game and learning already you know, under testing, they're working on it, they've been, been putting different ideas together for a few years, they've made a ton of progress in fulfilling the dream of helping Jeb learn how to read. And so today we bring you our chat with Oliver and Kellen from Jeb's Game about the process of bringing that team together virtually from across these social media platforms and how they're creating this really impressive and amazing VR-based learning experience. And if you go to their website, which we'll have in our show notes, you can see video versions of the early development of this game. And they also talk about how they keep this project on track because it's an all-volunteer project. This is not part of a company. They are a group of people all coming together with this strong purpose and mission, which really holds everything together and keeps the work aligned. We also talk about how, if you find yourself inspired by this conversation, there is still room for people to become involved. They're always looking for help. They're always looking for people who want to contribute or in a position to be part of the mission and the larger goal, which is to help Jeb and others like Jeb learn how to read. It was a really inspirational conversation speaking personally. I really appreciate their efforts and hope you enjoy it as much as we did. See the 
um, especially considering I have a lot of experience in the area of children with developmental delays. <laughs> and that's yeah. what I, 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 it was weird when I was, because I got the Oculus 2 recently and I was on Reddit. And I don't think anybody ever expects a lot of good things to come from Reddit. <laughs> but then I, I, for some reason, the Oculus 2, someone posted, here's something good to come from 2020. And it was Jeb's game. And I, you, did, you, did you all see that post that someone put on? on I, I put that post on. You did? Yes. So you, 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 you threw out a line and you reeled me in. <laughs> I guess it worked. It did, it did work. It did work. So it, it, was, it was, I guess the question, the first question I have is, how did you all get, get latched into this game because the, the initial post is moving, but there's a lot of moving things on Reddit. People mm -hmm. post a lot of emotional stuff. What was it about this post that you think resonated with people that, that drew them together to develop this, this, this thing that you're trying to create? Well, for, for me personally, what drew me into it is my friend Glenn, um, who heads up our audio department. And he saw you know, that I build websites and I do a little bit of marketing and things of that nature. And he asked me if I would mind taking a look at a project he was involved in. So I didn't, I didn't get to it from Reddit or any other postings. And immediately once I saw what it was, um, I knew it was something I wanted to be a part of. Um, I took it seriously, though. You know, I took a while to get back to them to make sure I had the time to dedicate to something like this since we're all volunteers. There's a lot of moving parts and uh, sometimes it can be tough to stay motivated when you, you know, you have a day job to put food on the table. Um, I do have some experience um, volunteering um, with organizations for all types of marginalized communities, whether it's people with developmental disorders or uh, workers, you know, in, in the fields and things of that nature. And uh, to use my skills versus just time, which I did right. with a lot of those campaigns really helped. Um, this particular post, I think, got a lot more traction than our other posts as well, the one that, that brought you on board because we didn't really make it a recruitment post, right? right. A lot of times we're like, hey, we're looking for volunteers. Anybody want to help? Right. This time we wanted to really just kind of tell the story about how it started. Right. And what about you, Kellen? I mean, how did you get it wrapped up into this activity? Yeah. Um, so about a year ago on the same subreddit, a uh, user by the name of RetGuy24 um, right. posted about his brother who had had learning disability. Um, and he's a 14-year-old uh, guy with Down syndrome. And uh, traditional methods of education have kind of failed to teach him how to read. So uh, what he did is he had an idea that VR could possibly help him uh, learn these skills. So it was a lot more intuitive for him to play with Beat Saber and Job Simulator and a few of these existing uh, applications. So that original post um, kind of pulled a lot of uh, Reddit users into action. So we built up a, a community in a Discord and um, organized our different departments, such as you know audio, art, technical, and uh, we've been chugging away at prototyping, um, different literacy skills since then, and uh, you know iterating to try to make them as uh, effective as possible. I've done a little bit of research on distributed software development teams, and in distributed work in general. And I think Oliver, when you're talking about staying motivated, you know, do you think that because it's fallen? And I've also researched hackers, like hacking culture. Do you think that because it's volunteer, it taps into more of that hacker ethos of like, like open source software development mentality versus if I'm getting paid for it, it becomes a job and therefore it's not as fun? 
I mean, I see, Kellen, you're nodding your head a lot too. I mean, what do you all think about that? As Is that part of the motivation? Because it taps into the sense of self, which is we're open source folks, we're hacking folks, we're creative folks, we're not constrained by our organization's, you know, requirements and processes and scrums, whatever else is going on. We can just be who we are as developers and as builders. Um, yeah, to a degree, to a degree. I never made the kind of hacking culture connection, but definitely the open source culture is definitely very prevalent within the entire immersive learning initiative, um, the team that's working on Jeb's game. And so that, yeah, that meant that's definitely what keeps me motivated is knowing that this isn't part of a mega corporation that's trying to make a buck out of, you know, an educational tool, but one of the biggest powers of it being open source, it can then be adjusted to other conditions right. and it can be used and, and really leave a lasting impact on the world. Um, and so, yeah, that definitely helps with motivation for sure versus if it was, you know, a nine to five where I'm making somebody rich off of something that still may be something needed and valuable to the world. Right. Uh, but the motivation is definitely different and that definitely helps keep us going. And Kellen, you were nodding your head as I was talking about this. So like, what are your thoughts about that point? Yeah, um, I think that's probably one of the biggest motivators, uh, just, you know, this ex extrinsic uh, common goal that we all have to uh, teach Jeb how to read. And, um, you know, just with that as our guiding uh, star, um, we're really just trying to follow that to its uh, natural conclusion and seeing if we can, um, you know, help him and other people with learning disabilities along the way. Uh, but yeah, as Oliver said, uh, if this was more about making a buck or a quick uh, way to get something out there for money, I, I just don't think we would be able to have the same community built up around it. There's a really nice book called um, The Cathedral and the Bazaar by an uh, anthropologist who's also a, a coder, or a programmer named Eric Raymond. And he he, you know, in this book that I've used in classes before, he talks about this ethos of, of building, of exploring, of, of creating, which drew people into this area in the first place. It's just a real quick story. I was interviewing this executive from this um, company, a software development or IS company, information systems company. And he said, we, we, we search for the most talented, most creative developers we can find at a college. We hire them and then we tell them how to do it our way. <laughs> and, and I, you know, and, and when people then, you know, people who will spend all day working, but then at night do the work that they really want to do and that they really care about. And so it sounds like with this kind of that hacker and the white hat hacker, not the black hat hacker mentality of, let's see what we can figure out apart from the situational constraints we often find ourselves in and having to do it someone else's way. We can do it our way, but yet at the same time, you're all working together. How do you keep that, that energy of creativity as a motivating factor but without having people forking and making decisions all over the place that might result in a breakdown in people, you know, operating collaboratively. Um, we have weekly meetings every Saturday. Um, wow. So we go under the agile software development model. Um, and so everything's fast paced. Um, of course, there can still be slowdowns. And so every Saturday at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern, uh, we have a group meeting and we all you know, kind of chime in on each other's departments. Everybody's allowed to go to the meeting. It's not just for, you know, for leaders only. Uh, generally, only the leaders of the teams will attend. And being able to, me as somebody who doesn't code games, but does, you know, web development and, and network analysis like that, it's interesting for me to hear how their process works right. and they're actually taking my suggestions and I'm taking their suggestions and we're getting those points of view from people that aren't experts at that, but that's nice and fresh. And that's really welcoming every Saturday. And some people might think it would be tough to, you know, attend a, 
quote unquote work meeting on a Saturday, even though it's a volunteer project, but it really does actually give me motivation for the rest of the week. That's pretty wild. And you know, it's in the, I teach a course on employee experience. And one of the things that can be really hard for organizations to manage and handle is this kind of um, integrative approach to knowledge, right? Cause you're mm-hmm. not, you're so small that you're not siloed. Mm-hmm. Right. And that you're still driven by this common purpose. And that seems to be the thing apart, you know, along with the mission, but that seems to be the thing that's really driving it. I mean, Colin, you know, thought, do you have thoughts on that point? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of the power of this project can come from uh, just taking a lot of viewpoints from different people with, uh, you know, different backgrounds and expertise and, you know, that, interdisciplinary meeting that we have every week, make sure that we're all synced. We uh, maintain motivation and momentum in the project, but um, yeah, absolutely. It's a a great way to motivate us to keep going. Does it have a hierarchical structure or flat structure? I mean, I know that you have uh, the immersive learning initiative and it's Jed's game, but it is, is how, what's the structure look like? Because I think, again, from an employee experience perspective, there's a special sauce in here. A lot of companies try to go flat or talk about being flat, but yet really the hierarchy is built in to the system. So it's hard, even though they might say we're a flat organization, in practice, they're not. How do you all manage like this environment of almost like a communal orientation to work? Yeah. Um, so our most uh, motivated volunteers have uh, kind of shown themselves over the past few months and uh, we've given them the roles of department leads. So uh, they're mostly responsible for coordinating other volunteers that have similar backgrounds into uh, achieving something on a larger scale. So uh, it helps us keep our uh, goal um, you know, synced as well as uh, making sure that we're working on a cohesive project instead of forking off in different ideas, like you were saying. It kind of reminds me, have you ever seen the Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it yeah. reminds me of that one, that one classic scene where it's like, I'm your king. Well, well we, we didn't elect you. <laughs> you don't elect a king. You, you know, we're a, our narco, you know, you know, communal syndicate or whatever it is. <laughs> Where we meet every, every so often, we meet, in, you know, and someone else gets elected. And there's also like a real danger in that falling apart too, right? That if it's so communal that everyone has an equal voice, that that can interfere with actually anything getting done. Because people might be looking for leadership and direction and someone to take initiative to say, no, we should like do it this way. This is a decision I think we should be making. So do you see that as well in the, in the structure between trying to keep it flat, keep it open, but at the same time, having the selected group who have the most dedicated hours or put the most into it and then allowing them to be elevated to take that control? Of course, to a degree. I mean, anytime you have a flat organization, there's going to need to be, you know, leadership positions to some degree. You know what I mean? Like, for example, CB generally, I mean, sorry, Kellen um, called them by his his handle there. um, Leads leads are are, uh, weekly meetings. And so he's, you know, taking charge. Hey, um, community outreach. What were you reporting today? Programming. What are you reporting today? Art. What are you reporting for today? And so that's going to be natural there. But then during the discussion, everybody's flat. You know what I mean? We all have an equal say. We, we use reason and logic to you know, come to a conclusion. And um, for example, you know, there'll be a guy, Joseph, who's in our audio department, but he's not the audio team lead, but he comes up with great ideas um, that we take seriously. And we don't say, oh, no, you're the new guy or you or you are you know not the department lead or anything like 
like that and dismiss him. Um, so we haven't had any issues with it kind of getting too spread out with too right. many ideas and going in too many different directions because we're all pretty much on the same page. And I think that just happened naturally. So I think right there, you said you use reason and logic. And I can, I can tell you that that's usually not the case. Yeah. Oh, no, I've been in plenty of work environments where it's in my, not. <laughs> in, my, in my organizational experience, and I'm not talking about my school right now, of course, but it's like you go, what, what are you thinking and why are we doing it this way? And there might be a logic and there might be a reason, but no one knows what it is. <laughs> and no one can tell <laughs> what's happening. And people are like, what's happening? I don't know. Maybe they must have some kind of reason. Are you sure? Because <laughs> I, I would not assume that to be the case. So reason and logic, good for you. Oh, that's, 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 that, that alone is impressive that Thank you're you. using that. <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. right? Even that oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's uh, not just these uh, weekly meetings that keep us uh, driving towards a you know, common, cohesive uh, project goal, but uh, we also support it with a uh, great onboarding process that Oliver has helped set up, as well as a game design document um, that just lists out what mechanics we want to create and what really the development plan should look like. So uh, we keep iterating upon that as well. Um, a lot of the outputs from our weekly meetings are inputs for that. But, um, you know, we try to make as many design decisions as possible, a communal, uh, communal practice. So Oliver's in charge of community outreach, marketing, and HR with the onboarding process. Uh, to some degree, <laughs> I, with the, yeah, with the onboarding, yeah, to some degree, I guess. I never thought of myself as HR, but I guess, yeah, a little bit. Well, no, no one, no one likes to Oliver. No one likes to think of themselves. As, I'm it's kidding. not exciting. HR listeners, it's, it's it's a joke. Please don't. E no one emails me anyway. But yeah, so uh, what's the onboarding process like? Because it is such an important part of of many organizations, but especially volunteer ones. So like what like what goes on if I'm a volunteer for, you know, the immersive learning initiative in Jeb's game. Like what, like what happens? Do I get like a backpack, a hat? Do I get a mug? <laughs> no backpacks, no hats. Mugs oh. though. I'd like a mug. I think we should get mugs actually. CB, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm big on coffee. So, <laughs> um, well, when thinking about it, it, I use it like a sales funnel would be right. Where it starts with, okay, where's the traffic coming from? What type of viewer is it going to be? What's the first page that they hit or commonly called the landing page, which any page can be a landing page. And then we have our volunteer page that goes into the different departments that we have. It also talks about that we use the agile um, development mm -hmm. structure. And so people already have a good idea of what they're getting themselves into, right? Um, if they're not familiar with agile, there's a little bit of information there as well as a link to dig deeper into what it is. And then within the actual onboarding process itself, after they click to join the discord, which is the first start, the first kind of conversion point, I guess I'd say. Right. Um, they get led into the Discord. They have a welcome channel where they can actually see the different roles and they can tag themselves. We took the kind of manual step out of it and so they can tag themselves with a role. That then alerts that... Um, department's lead who then welcomes them and then oh, oh sorry there's also a form on the welcome right. channel in the discord that they can fill out with any experience why they're there what they're interested in doing the department lead gets the notification that somebody new's joined their department can review that form and then you know, usually follows up within a day or so um, to start communication and then the department leads really take it from there it is fascinating because on the one hand i you know it's like this flat structure that exists out of this Reddit post, but at the same time, you're speaking in very traditional terms of department heads, onboarding, you know, agile methodologies, you mm -hmm. know, this, the, you know, kind of formal approaches, but at the same time, being open source, being kind of hacker-ish, my word, oriented, 
and being kind of experimental in this space, this new space. So it's, a, it's you know, I don't, there's not a question there, but it's kind of like this interesting duality between traditional structure and um, online kind of ethos of openness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, honestly, um, I haven't really thought about it that way until, you know, you brought up the qu- these questions earlier. Um, I think it's just naturally because of our motivations. There's none of that internal office drama that leads to the issues that a flat structure can have where somebody's trying to get a leadership role or trying to, um, whether it's ego or whatever, motivated. And we're, we're all just there for the right reasons. I, I, I think that's what it boils down to at the end of the day. Yeah. And I... Uh, I th- I think there's, uh, you know, some of the beauty of Agile is uh, I think people are the most productive when it's not a fully ordered organization with established processes and practices for everything. But at the same time, if everything's complete chaos, then you're going to have a lot of ideas going in different directions. So really just a mixture between those two, making sure that we can adapt to any new changes or ideas, while at the same time, um, keeping the momentum going and uh, having a common goal. Yeah, I, ju- I just was to my class last night because I'm teaching this course, Ethnography for Experience Design. We were There's a concept that I refer to as innovation ethnography, which is how to use ethnographic insights and, and awarenesses to create innovative opportunities. Long story short, it has to deal with, you know, creating these spaces of emergence, right? And that formal organizational processes can often just kill those, just throw them on the floor, stomp them until like the life is, you know, is out of them or at least suck the soul out of it. So, you know, a company might say, here's our tech manual on how to be innovative. So make sure you follow it and there'll be a test, you know, next week. And, and <laughs> you know, make sure you get, so you have this idea, make sure you, you go through all this. And today I was doing a live stream where I had to explain to this, this other educational live streamer what a skunk works is. He never heard this term. And I don't know if you're familiar with the term skunk works, but this idea of, we're going to carve off a space in the organization that's protected from management and formal process and, and, and resource lines where, there's, where we're beholden to deliver a particular thing so we can be innovative. And so you, in many organizations, you have to hide to be creative and innovative. And so I, I like your description of Agile being like, we want to protect ourselves from formal structure, but yet we need some kind of structure so that we're not just, you know, going off in 5,000 different directions. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is about, I, I think what we're trying to incentivize is, um, you know, uh, any new volunteers that we have, uh, we want to, you know, make sure that their unique perspective and expertise can drive our decision-making processes. They're not just, you know, a pawn or a drone that's just completing one random task that we can give to them. You know, they're part of the project and the design. So. Um, I have not been part of a startup really before. So is this like, I mean, it does, it is a startup technically, but is that, does it have that mm-hmm. kind of like cultural feel like a startup kind of, kind of vibe to it? Um, not because um, I've dealt with a lot of startups and a lot of times it can kind of be overboard with this with the startup culture. Um, and so, yeah, time? exactly. Exactly. I was thinking of a, <laughs> a way to give a good example of what right. my, I'm picturing in my head. But absolutely. Um, 
And even with startups, right? A lot of times it's one person's vision or a couple of people's vision and only they really have a sense of ownership of it, right? right. And with us, I, I feel that everybody does feel like they have a sense of ownership. They have a sense of pride. Um, they know they're contributing to make something that hasn't been done before that's actually going to do some good. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say we have a, a startup vibe, but maybe I have a different mental picture or a different experience um, with, with startups than other people do. Um, but I think we're just something else altogether. You agree with that, Callan? CB? Since like, <laughs> you're going to get the mugs. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for calling out. Buddy. That's okay. No worries. It's, 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 it's done. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> that idea of uh, collective ownership is actually part of uh, agile where, um, you know, in traditional companies, uh, you know, if you have a uh, audio lead, he's only responsible for the processes associated with audio and sound design. Um, but when you're working with collective ownership, uh, you're also responsible for the other processes and other departments. So it really gives people more of a sense of ownership over the entire uh, you know, design experience. Because people have like, a, I mean, it's easy to have a, a, a 360 degree view. Mm -hmm. I hate using that term, but I'll use it anyway, of what's going on because there's only so many of you, right? And you don't have, you know, you don't have this issue of what's going on over there and people protecting what's going on over there. So no one finds out, right? Because for, like, for what, sure. well, there's like, what resources are you fighting over? It's all volunteer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's not yeah. like... <laughs> I mean, if, if you all start getting paid, then I mean, it all might fall apart. But as long as people are, like you said, this motivation, this purpose, the right reason, which is, I mean, not just obviously Jeb, it's called Jeb's game, but for so many people like me who are parents of kids who have developmental disabilities and struggle with so many different things, anybody who's trying to give a hand to that situation is like, oh, thank God, because you don't often get hands. You know, and so I think that that that's a really, really compelling. That's what that's what resonated with me about it was not like, oh, that's a nice story. You know, what's up? What's what's on TV? Um, yeah. But it's like, wow. What's going on with this? And, you know, the it's, you know, just to editorialize my own point of view a little bit, you know, because being a parent of a child with a disability. Especially as the kids get older, you just get used to missing milestones. Right, you just kind of get used to it, and to have a situation like this where you you can still reclaim that milestone, as simple as reading, you know, putting letters together, is like wow, that's just transformative, and that that people in the organization know that is pretty special. That just hit home for me because uh, I. Uh... You know, I know the implications this has, but to hear from you about the milestones and about how this is one that uh, a lot of parents miss and that we may be giving those back. Um, yeah, that uh, that hit me right in the feels there. Uh, not to be cheesy <laughs> with the response, but I don't know how else to say it. I don't know how else to say it, but that uh, um, that's definitely keeping me motivated for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. That's for sure. And my kid can read. So, I mean, it's like, like I'm not even looking at it for her because she can actually mm -hmm. read. Um, she has other stuff she can't do. And there's a lot of other struggles. <clears throat> like if you, can, if you can create a VR simulation of how to take herself to the bathroom, that would be golden. Can you get on that next? That might be a little <laughs> bit different of a VR experience. <laughs> well, it's open source. So if, if somebody wants to jump on it, they can. There we go. The bathroom <laughs> app, um, you know, or, or any other features. And, and so it's, 
it is interesting to think about how, as, as we were talking about earlier, and I'm an educator, no one really thinks about VR isn't, if, they don't, if they're thinking about it, they don't quite know what to make of it. Are there any kinds of educational models from VR that you're looking at and going, yeah, because it is. I've seen the the video of the early beta versions. It is a it, you know mix of gamification, immersive VR manipulation of the environment, um, and educational principles. So, like, what models are there for you all to follow? You just kind of blazing this trail on your own. So, one of the benefits of uh, you know VR as medium is it allows us to individualize the experience. Um, you know, the lesson doesn't progress until the student does. And, uh, you know, we can support um, the model called uh, mastery-based learning. So they don't, they're not actually allowed to move on to the next lesson until they fully understand the first one. So that really gives us a uh, ability to make sure that whoever is using the platform um, understands these skills and, uh, you know, and can hopefully apply them in the real world. So. And are these things that you all, I mean, you're talking about pedagogy and theories of learning and approaches. Is this stuff that you all knew ahead of time in education? Or is this, as you're going through this, you're getting this exposure to these principles and these approaches that you now are integrating into the game? I'm definitely learning more about education than I knew coming into it with this project. That's for sure. And that's been a welcome experience for me. What about you, Kellen? Yeah, um, same. It's uh, a lot of it's thanks to our um, SOPs, our uh, you know educational consultants as well, bringing mm -hmm. these traditional ideas and you know seeing what we can do with them in a uh, new medium. And do you have? Um, I'm sure you do, but I'll ask the question anyway. You know, folks who are specializing in you know developmental disabilities and that kind of that kind of learning, or do you find? And I, I even though I'm an educator, I don't know that area of work oddly enough. Or is it generalized principles that are applied to any kind of student that, that work just as well with this particular population? I'd say a mix of both. <clears throat> okay. How so? Um, so with um, feedback and um, managing that, there's different models that you can use for that. And again, I'm learning more about education, so I might not be the best person to answer this, but from what I've noticed is we are taking, you know, basic educational models of, you know, just the basics and then tweaking them for the experience and then tweaking them for the demographic that we're, that's actually going to be using the device. Um, and so that's anything from the positive reinforcement, the negative reinforcement, how positive we get or how negative we get, um, how much we turn up the difficulty if they're getting it right repeatedly um, and things of that nature, just so that they, um, the user doesn't get frustrated when they're using the game and, and teaching, because we still want it to be a fun experience. We still want to keep them motivated. And so it's really just been trial and error, at least on, for, for me on that. I'm sure a lot of other people had a lot more knowledge going into it. Yeah, um, but the starting point for uh, these game modes that we're designing are based off of established literacy skills. Um, and right. our uh, main consultant, a, uh, a literacy educator called Kay, she works with um, uh, people with Down syndrome and learning disabilities on a daily basis. So uh, she's been a great resource for getting us up to speed on that. I can imagine. And, uh, you know, when, when I teach ethnography or you look at human centered design or those kinds of approaches, it's this idea of, a, you know, for those who may not be familiar of, you know, really not just taking the voice of the user, 
the perspective of the user, but also understanding within the world of the user how this technology is going to situate and how and how it embeds in their cultural environment. And so, you know, there's so many levels to this because on the one hand, there's youth, you know, environment. You know, these are young, primarily young people, although I know it's an application for adults as well, right? But at the same time, there's also potential, um, you know, developmental disability culture. And I even say that, and this might sound kind of weird, but like my daughter does not have Down syndrome. She has a different chromosomal extra chromosome thing. <laughs> and so you have these kinds of, interesting distinctions, cultural distinctions within that world, you know, if a child has Downs or has Patows or has Edwards or has some crazy variant that only like, you know, that's like one small deletion on one arm of one genetic chain, that, that can be like a different culture of disability. So I'm kind of curious, and you might, the answer might not, be not, might be not at all, but are there any conversations around those particularities or is it more just around like, you know, approaching it as just, you know, developmental disability and we're almost using Down syndrome as a persona to help guide us in potentially designing for these other groups at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, it's your, uh, your latter answer. So, um, you know, Jeb is the main, our, our main persona is this right. one person. So uh, we've been targeting, uh, you know, people with Down syndrome specifically, and, you know, what tools have been shown to work with them in the past. Um, but, uh, you know, once we can tackle this extreme, hopefully we can regress to handle some of those other uh, learning disabilities. It was this, it's funny to uh, what I'm going to say is funny to me, it might be horrifying to everybody else. But I was talking with, uh, with parent with like parents of you know, friends of ours whose child is disabled and say, they said something to the effect of, yeah, sure. Everyone, I didn't talk, not about this, but just in general, you know, uh, yeah, sure. Everyone loves the down syndrome kids. And I was like, almost like resentful. <laughs> it's kind of like, whoa. <laughs> and I got what they meant. Right. Because it's, you know, you know, Corky on what was that TV show? I don't even remember the name of the TV show that Corky was uh -huh. on. I can't think of the name, but I know what you're talking about. Right. Or, you know, just like the, the, the characters you think of in movies or whatever are usually of Down syndrome. Right. And then this parent was feeling marginalized because what about our kids? I was like, well, okay, cool. that's a little harsh, but I understand it. Mm -hmm. And so not, it's not like politics, but like this interesting feature of like even the politics of parents with kids with disabilities <laughs> that mm -hmm. people start to structure and hierarchy based on what kind of disability do they have? I had a parent one time tell me, you're so lucky because your kid has a genetic problem. You know, you can see that on a test result. <laughs> My kid doesn't, and it takes like an interpretation of a test to, to get like services. And it's like this weird world you find yourself in. And I don't know if you've kind of tapped into any of that at all, or if you're just like, nope, we just got like Down syndrome, Jeb's game. We're staying in our lane. I don't want to hear about any of this other stuff or get involved in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't say we don't want to hear about it or get involved in it, but yeah, like, like Kellen said, um, our primary model is to make something that's going to work with Jeb. He was the inspiration for it. Right. Um, he happens to have down syndrome. And so that's going to, that factors into it. And we have been making it, you know, lasered for that specific condition. Uh, but definitely the open source nature of it means that we will be able to grow on it ourselves or somebody else will be able to. 
I want to tap in real quick, um, Kellen. Or sorry, go, go ahead first, and I want to tap into this other question, this other point. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of our, uh, you know, one of the main purposes behind this project is to make it as accessible as possible. Um, so, absolutely, in the long term, we want to, um, you know, tackle those other uh, learning disabilities. But you know, to also support that, we're making everything open source, free to use, trying to make it work with as many. Um, you know, cheap headsets as possible. And as right. the technology progresses, uh, you know, the barrier to entry is going to come down for people to get access to the hardware. Yeah, I want to follow up on that. But, you know, something you said, Oliver, which I thought was interesting, happens to have Down syndrome mm-hmm. versus has Down syndrome. And that might not sound like a big distinction or difference, but I, I can hear it as a big distinction and big mm-hmm. difference. One is like, I happen to be tall, but it doesn't define me versus he's mm-hmm. tall. I mean, so is this a way that through this kind of program, through this process, you've, and I don't, don't know you individually, but it's, it's resulted in you all rethinking how you think about these things, not only with this particular situation with Jeb, but just in general. Condition, ideology, features, you know, I mean, not ideology, but identity, right? You know, that mm-hmm. our features are not our identities. They're just aspects of who we are. Yeah. Um, it, it has a little bit. Um, I have had a lot of close friends um, that had developmental disorders or mental disabilities, and um, they, they never want they never want the the condition to be labeled first. Right. Like a, a Down syndrome child. It's no, it's a child with Down right. syndrome. It doesn't define them. And so I kind of brought that going into this already. Um, but definitely it, it's made me a lot more intimate with the topic and kind of putting myself in their shoes and how I don't want to be defined by, you know, one trait or one thing either. Um, but yeah, it's an, it was an unintended consequence to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting question, right? Because I, I, I have done, I've not done work, but I know one of my former students <clears throat> came to realize he has autism or is autistic later in life, like much later. And it helped him to, understand a lot of his treatment throughout his life in terms of being marginalized, ostracized, mistreated, misunderstood, things like that. And then the language that people use as, you know, I'm a person with autism versus people intentionally saying I'm autistic. And we see the same thing like in deaf culture, right? That people will say like, I am deaf as a sign of who they are primarily with their identity versus perhaps somebody later on who became deaf saying I am deaf, but I'm not a deaf person. I don't know if you saw the movie Sound of Metal. Did either of you see that? I have. I have. Yeah. So Oliver, you know what I'm talking about, right? And Mm -hmm. Kellen, definitely it's worth watching because it it deals with these issues of identity, self, quote unquote, disability, disability and being differentially abled versus the disability actually being an opportunity as well. So it's just, this is, I think you probably found yourselves in this, like in this world of how do we orient to each other by virtue of these other factors? And how do we negotiate those things with this, just the primary purpose, the true north of, we just want Jeb to be able to read. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, first and foremost, you know, we're all people and uh, I think it's just a a matter of creating some sort of experience that can, 
you know, play off of our uh, unique, uh, you know, identifiers, you know, maybe you have Down syndrome or some other learning right. disability. Um, but, you know, that doesn't really define you as a person. And right. I think it's really just a failing of our current models. And we say, mm-hmm. you know, is this person, uh, they're not going to be able to learn. I, I think, you know, just personally, I, this may be unfounded, but, you know, anyone should be able, could be able to learn anything if they're given the right experience to do so. So, you know, it's just if education is a problem, there has to be an optimal solution that we can create for people. I think that's right. I think it's, if, it, if it's not true, it's at least aspirational that as educators, of which I consider myself to be one, that we shouldn't sit there and say, well, I just can't. I'm not good at this. I'm not naturally. I've seen this with artists, for instance, where someone will say to an artist, you know, I just can't, I can't draw. Well, the artist says, and the artist will say, well, how long have you practiced it? <laughs> yeah. Never. Well, then how do you know, right? Do you think I just picked up this paintbrush or this pencil and just, or like you all, you think I just started coding and it just happened? It took a long time to get to where you are. And if given the right tools, and it's also part of our educational system that sometimes those right tools aren't made available. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, it's not the fault of the school district because they're dealing with their own resource constraints. And it's not the fault of the parents because they're dealing with their own constraints. But it does, you know, those, those, those shortcomings doesn't necessarily mean it's acceptable in terms of the outcome. It means how do we creatively work around those shortcomings to create that opportunity? Exactly. That's my editorial. That's, thank you for coming to my <laughs> TED Talk. So in, in, in terms of the game, like one of the questions I was kind of curious about do you find, I mean, obviously VR is, is, you know, there's a sensory, sensory element to it, but the idea of like wearing the headset, and it's one thing I was kind of curious about if you all talked about that sometimes kids with developmental disabilities have like real sensory issues with tags in their shirt. Mm-hmm. Like my daughter hates tags in her shirt. And I started wondering, would you wear a VR headset? I mean, you know, I have, not that I'm asking you for like, if you, if you crack the code, because to do VR, you need a headset. But like, what about those kinds of things that are not just about the game itself, but the environment in which the game is happening? Have you found this to be a challenge? I don't think we've seen that just yet because okay. we're not at that phase of testing where we right. have, and especially with COVID going on, you know, I can't share my headset with, with, with somebody nearby that, that has the condition. And so that's definitely going to be a factor. That's definitely going to be something we're probably going to run into and we're going to need to overcome. Um, I do think that the benefits of VR outweigh because um, sometimes um, it, they, somebody might be bothered by something and then once they experience it and we can tailor it to them. Um, You know, for example, um, children with autism are a great example. A lot of times they'll get attached to colors or they'll get attached to sensory um, influences and inputs, sometimes negatively, sometimes positively. And I think if we can overcome that by making everything else in the environment uh, welcoming and immersive and non-threatening, we'll we'll be able to overcome some of those. But I'm sure there's going to be some limitations on, on people that will be able to use a headset at the end of the day. But with development, in that as well. It, they're going to be lighter weight. They're going to be less intrusive. We can also do things like balancing the headset so it, it's less of a feel because uh, right. a lot of times the default quest will be a little front heavy. Right. We'll put weights on the back to actually even it out so there's less pressure on the back of the skull. And so, yeah, in short answer, we haven't really jumped into that part of the, the testing and development yet, but we already have some ideas on how to overcome them. 
Yeah, and like this idea of like, you know, pimp my Oculus. <clears throat> As I see on, on Reddit, people doing all these crazy kinds of designs mm-hmm. that makes, and it reminds me of, you know, if you're familiar with the story of, I think it was 3M when they were making an MRI machine and the children were terrified of it. So they created it to make, make it look like it was a pirate ship or a canoe going into a tunnel. Do you know, do you know that story? I don't, I don't. It's <clears throat> interesting though. Kellen, you familiar with it? Uh, I think I saw a headline, but uh, yeah, yeah, please so elaborate. So like really quick, the guy who created, or was it the main designer behind the, you know, I think it's a, a MRI machine where you have to go into the tube, mm-hmm. right? It was beautiful and lovely and kids were horrified of it because it was like this big antiseptic, scary looking tube. And so what they did was created on the ground rocks that they had to skip along or hop along. And then the tray that they laid in, the table that they laid it laid on was decorated like a canoe. And then the, 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 the thing that they went into to get the MRI looked like they were going into a cave. And so it created this larger experience mm-hmm. around it that made it much more accessible and less scary to the children. Yeah, so that's that, that's what I was thinking about. Like, you know, like what, a good what analogy. would it look like if we, you know, we put like, you know, googly eyes, that's a simple one. Mm-hmm. But how can yeah. we even decorate it mm-hmm. on the outside so that people then, it emulates a character that they know or a, a yep. video that they've watched or a cartoon that they follow or something like that. Absolutely. Right. And, and MRIs uh, are scary. They seem horrifying. <laughs> I've never had one. I've, I've had a couple of them. I used to have seizures when I was younger, and they're scary. Those, they those are not pleasant machines. They're loud, too. Right. Kellen, what were you going to say? Yeah. Um, I mean, just like what you were saying with the MRI machine, creating some sort of purpose behind the actual task involved. Um, I think Jeb's game is trying to support uh, kids. And, um, you know, we're surrounding these tasks with a narrative of you're on the spaceship with a mission to, uh, you know, discover the alphabet and learn how to read. So um, after some, uh, you know, crazy event where you crash on this uh, pirate, uh, you know, planet, um, you know, it, it's really about just trying to create a sense of purpose and uh, another way to drive them to learn this. So, um, yeah, I absolutely think, you know, either reskinning the task at hand or um, creating some sort of narrative can definitely benefit people. It seems really, for me, trying to kill zombies in Walking Dead Saints and Sinners, it seems really hard to program for this environment. I'm not a programmer. It all seems hard. But is it, I mean, is it, you don't have to be humble, but is it challenging to create like a map that opens up because I was looking at the pirate video. Is it hard to do like a Beat Saber kind of event where like you're, you're using a wand to hit, you know, to hit letters that you're supposed to identify? Or is, or is it just like any other kind of programming that once you figure it out, it's not too bad? It seems pretty amazing and pretty difficult to do. Yeah, we have def- a... Uh, mm-hmm. No, go ahead, Colin. Go ahead. We have a uh, incredible uh, human-computer interaction researcher um, that's leading our development efforts. His name is uh, Jorge. Um, I don't really want to speak on his behalf, but um, you know, it, it's it's remarkable what these guys can do, and uh, you know, their ability to um, you know take these design constraints in mind and turn those into a uh, experience. Or it's it's a wonder to see in person. Yeah, you're going to say Oliver. 
I was gonna gonna speak about Jorge as well. I don't want to speak for his work, but some of the stuff he's done on hand modeling and how it interacts and the collision with the um, other assets in the environment right. has just been amazing. And for me, as somebody that's a web developer, that's you know very traditionally two D, to see what they've done is. It's been amazing. It's been unbelievable, frankly, um, for a lot of the things that he's done because he's been stuff that AAA games, d- you know, don't do, especially with the with the with, with the actual uh, collisions on the hands. And right. so, how hard or easy that was for him, he certainly makes it look easy. I'll tell right. you that. Um, but uh, I, I'd let him speak to that. We actually have a professor at Bentley in haptics who specializes in haptics, and it's such a cool part of the experience, right? When you get that vibration in the in the you know hand controls. That then that connects what you're seeing visually and what you're hearing from an auditory standpoint with what you're feeling in your hand, mm-hmm. and that's just like I'm like that's like really cool stuff. I think at some point if you had like a sleeve to put on, and so like when the zombie's biting my arm, I feel that. That would be really. That cool. might be a little too much for me. It might be, but. It would be really <laughs> cool. And I always think like maybe I should smell like what the zombies smell like, but then I'm like, is that the zombie? It's like no, it's my dog who needs a bath. But it's almost <laughs> the same thing. It's almost the same thing. And I, I, the other thing that was really cool from a census standpoint, a sensory standpoint is the, the sounds. And I was watching the video that you have on your website about your audio engineers. Mm-hmm. And that was like the coolest stuff because they're just like grabbing whatever they have, like old Nintendo 64 <laughs> controllers and whatever else they had like laying around to try to sit, you know, simulate the sounds that they were hearing, you're seeing, I should say, on the, on the game environment. It seems like they were having a lot of fun. Oh, it certainly did. Yeah, that would be uh, that was Glenn and Joseph uh, from the audio team, and yeah, they're wizards as well. Um, they do great work on really setting the feel um, and helping with that. You know, software haptics. You know, maybe fall short that those sound cues really do put you in the environment even more. Yeah, and so like looking forward, what's the production schedule looking like? In terms of, I think by by mid two thousand twenty one, you're hoping to have something available. Is that still the plan, or like where where are you all at right now? Yeah, um, so we've uh, narrowed down our designs to uh, two game modes um, that are going to be targeting our first two literacy skills, and uh, we're hoping to get a fully polished uh, what's called a vertical slice, mm-hmm. um, which is just an example of um, you know a small bit of what the full game would entail, but gives you a. Uh, great sense of what it should uh, feel and be like. So um, yeah, the, the development schedule is looking like we'll uh, be releasing that uh, mid-2021. But um, you know, since everything is uh, volunteer-powered, it's a little hard to uh, you know, put a definite date on that. And so do you find yourselves more or less on schedule with where you thought you're going to be at this time? I'd say more or less. Yeah, pretty, I mean, there's been some hiccups with COVID and stuff like that, and people well, need yeah. to, you know, take time off or they're losing their jobs and stuff of that nature. And so that has definitely been some roadblocks for us. Um, but we we keep trekking on. Um, and, and I'm going to plug if anybody hearing this wants to volunteer for the project uh, yeah. <laughs> to help us make that uh, mid to late 2021. Um, you can check it out at jebsgame.com, and we'll be more than happy to have you. And you were going to say, Kellen, about this the schedule. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is just uh, based on, you know, what's our, uh, you know, how is the project's momentum continuing over time? And I mean, we've definitely had some breaks where we've slowed down over a couple months, but, um, you know, it seems like we have a lot of motivated people, new volunteers coming into the project, um, you know, and it's just maintaining the 
momentum is the, the key factor there for that release date. I mean, it's pretty impressive, right? That the fact, again, going back to that, so many companies have problems setting release dates. I had, a, I had a student who was working for one of the major video game companies and there's a term, I'm trying to remember what the term was, where like no one goes home for like a month and a half. It might be slam or something like that. Like where everyone, because they're all trying to hit the release date for this major release, like no one leaves. And, and it's just like awful, but that's just part of the, the vibe of the video mm -hmm. game world. And so it seems you know, pretty amazing that you've all gotten this far from a post on, on Reddit, which wasn't too long ago. I mean, this post was made, what, in 2019? Uh, February 2020, I believe. February, February 2020. February 2020. And in that time period, you're already where you are. I mean, it seems, it seems impressive to me, but what do I know? But it seems impressive. <laughs> have, have, have you added any play or love from any like, of the major companies looking at this just to reach out and say, hey, good job, good on you, this is fantastic? Not from our, you know, initial social media posts and things like that and the minimal marketing we're doing. We're really waiting till we have the vertical slice ready to fully reach out to a lot of, you know, the big players, you know, um, whether it's development studios or, you know, companies like Oculus that are actually right. making the hardware and stuff of that nature. Because we want to have something to show. We want to show that we're serious. We want them to be able to actually get a good feel for it and know that we're actually, you know, able to tackle the job and have actually made progress right now. We don't have that vertical slice. So we're waiting for that. Right. We have reached out to some organizations. Um, I actually just did uh, earlier this week, um, down syndrome organizations and other organizations to get their feedback. Right. Because like, like, you know, like before we were talking about, um, I don't have down syndrome. So um, I'm, right. my guesses or the input from our other experts can only go so far. And, um, so uh, we're hopeful, though. Uh, once we get the vertical slice, um, we'll be able to get a lot more eyes on the project. And they must have been thrilled, right? I mean, the, those organizations that you know, are, are working with primarily these populations, they must have been very, very excited around this opportunity. I hope so. I hope so. I just sent the emails out earlier this week and haven't heard back yet, so we'll see. Well, if you don't I'm hear gonna about call up we'll, some phone calls. Yeah, let me know. I have no problem okay. whatsoever. <laughs> But I even think like, you know, organizations like, you know, Best Buddies. Mm -hmm. And I know, I think that they, on, on the Reddit page, there was some discussion about what if it could be like multiplayer and be like really cool potentially to have like a buddy, like the Best Buddies program. I don't know if you're familiar with it, to have like a peer, you know, assistance like mm -hmm. people do with, with, you know, multiplayer games. And that's like, you know, a really great opportunity as well to get that kind of level of support and buy-in to help with resources and, and marketing and input as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So people want, well, what, what are the biggest areas of need right now for volunteers, would you say? Um, in particular or like everything all at the same time? I mean, we can always use more for everything, um, but definitely I would say um, Unity, 3D Unity programmers. What's that? Um, and What's and so that's what, that's, that's the team Jorge leads that we discussed earlier. And that's the main mm -hmm. programming of the actual models, how they're dealing in the environment. You know, for, you've, you've got stuff like art and then you've got animation and rigging and those get the characters ready to then be put into the environment. And that environment then is, is then dictated by the, the actual programming, which we use right. Unity to, to make the game. And so that's definitely where the most need is. Gotcha. You Kellen, same? Yeah, um, just restating that, you know, we're looking for uh, VR developers that have experience with uh, the game engine Unity. 
um, first and foremost. But, uh, you know, other than that, uh, any educational consultants, we'd be, uh, you know, very happy if you guys could look over our design documents, give any feedback or, uh, you know, provide your expertise on our current designs. Are there a lot of VR Unity, whatever you called it? I mean, it seems like given how new VR is, that is that a occupation that's in Apple supply or is that a pretty specific skill set still in the world of development? So um, a lot of the tools that we're using are um, pretty much the same that you would use for uh, traditional game development. Okay. So uh, thankfully we have a lot of support in that, but um, you know, you don't really need to be a VR developer. If you have game development experience in Unity, um, we'd be happy to have you and we can definitely get you up to speed. So, if, so for anybody who's looking to actually also work on a great cause and develop their own skills, this would be a great opportunity to do both, to right. be a Absolutely. game, you know, add, add, you know, a badge or whatever kids are calling it nowadays, whatever you kids call mm -hmm. it nowadays to your LinkedIn along with working on a really important cause that's going to have great impact for a lot of different people. This is the opportunity for you, for Absolutely. sure, right? Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Anything we left out? Any other final messages, parting words to, to let people know about Jeb's game that, that we didn't have a chance to cover? I think that uh, pretty much covers it, but yeah. uh, let's teach Jeb how to read, you know? Exactly. <laughs> Many thanks to Oliver James and Kellen Elliott for talking about Jeb's game and showing their innovative approach to designing learning experiences and honestly their passion and purpose that keeps this project going. You can find more about Jeb's game as well as the work and how you can get involved too in our show notes. We also want to thank you for supporting the podcast. We really do appreciate your contributions just in terms of listening, in terms of emailing us and sharing your ideas, and even your financial support in making the podcast possible. And we, wanna, we don't ever really say this because we're not in this for the financial support, but if you find yourself motivated to do so, you can always support our podcast through glow.fm and the link to that support can be found on our website, experiencexdesign.com. You can also share feedback at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. Tell us what you thought of the episode. Tell us what ideas you think would be good for new episodes and just how you're finding the podcast overall. Finally, if you want to subscribe and join the EXD community, head over to our website, just give us your email, don't cost nothing, and stay on top of all the EXD news. And with that, be safe, be well, and we will see you next time on Experience by Design. Ciao.